Hello and welcome to Alchemy, the home of the open mind. We exist thanks to your kind donations, so if you have donated in the recent past, thank you very much. It's hugely appreciated. You'll find the various links on the website. And just to let you know, as well as our Facebook and Twitter page, we've recently started an Instagram page as well. So if you want to follow there, it's instagram.com forward slash alchemy radio underscore. So then, on to the show. Alchemy. My guest this episode is Pierre Sabac. Pierre is an expert on ancient symbolism and etymology and is widely recognized as a leading academic in the fields of religion, mythology, mysticism and the esoteric. New ufology is a study of occult symbolism to deconstruct the ufological tradition, a restricted teaching equated with the flying saucer and its occupants, a crew member of a vessel. A completely new field of research, the focus of new ufology is scaphology, the study of angelic boats within religion and mythology. Pierre's work on the saucer cults details a secret alien code within language, one that is identified archaically with the angelic sailor and its human and non-human hosts. And I'm very pleased to welcome Pierre to the show for the first time. Pierre, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you, uh, John, for inviting me on your show. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you tonight. Likewise, we haven't done a huge amount on ufology or extraterrestrials on alchemy to date, and I'm extremely interested to hear what you have to say over the course of the chat that we have. But there's a question that I ask everybody who comes on the show for the first time, quite a wide-ranging one, not to put you on the spot, but maybe I am. How did you get, Pierre, from where you were to where you are now? Yeah, I think there were a number of, shall we say, pointers within my life which led up to this um, situation of where I began to really research ufology. I describe this as scaphology, which is the study of um, angelic boats within the religious and mythological tradition. Now, when I was a child, I saw what I construed to be a rocket within a field. And this rocket, it, it, it was standing in the field and it was a field away from me. So it was quite a distance. And this rocket appeared to be about the size of a silo. So at least the size of a house. And it just took off and it, it flew vertically, it did a right angle turn and it just flew over my head. And from about the age of nine or ten, that really... Um, got me asking questions about what what are UFOs. So in that respect, what I saw wasn't, if you like, a conventional flying saucer. It was more of a, a shape of a missile. And I think that that's actually interesting when we get into the subject of scaphology because some of the representations of ancient um, flying saucers are depicted as missiles. But this is quite interesting because in the ancient depictions, uh, the word for a missile was actually a type of shield. And this shield um, would contain hot sand and sometimes excrement and they would combine the two together and they would fling the shield um, at the uh, armies or fortifications or use them to um, sink ships so the shield is used as a representation of the angelic host and the angelic host is a symbol of a sailor the sailor is denotational um, of the angels of the emissaries And, and these emissaries are often connected with flying shields which in today's parlance is a flying saucer so going back to my childhood Um, That was 
the first, if you like, the inception of the idea, and I became very interested in ufology. And from about the age of 10, I was um, reading about ufology, reading about um, entities. I was also very interested in ghosts, in the paranormal. And I, I think... Um, in the late 1990s, um, I came across um, a couple of authors and I came across them at, at a similar time. And they were both saying pretty much the same thing, but they were say, saying it from a different, um, shall we say, perspective. So I came across David Icke and I also came across Robert Temple. Now, Robert Temple is an emeritus professor and he wrote what was perhaps the definitive account of um, ancient aliens and there certainly hasn't been a book on ancient aliens which has um, which has been written um, well in, in the last 25 years he wrote this 25 years ago and it was called the Sirius Mystery and he was arguing that um, from Sirius there was a race of um, entities um, which came and influenced culture on, on the earth and he used archaeology and etymology in order to um, construct that argument and so I found that actually um, very, very interesting, and um, I also read David Icke at the t um, at the same time as well, and he was um, basically talking about reptilian beings, um, which had impacted the earth and which were con interconnected to the governments, and I found David Icke's writing very interesting, um, but I I just found that there was a lot. It, it, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence and I thought well this is an interesting idea and there does seem to be an archaeological record and again David Icke was talking about um, different people who had seen these entities but a lot of it was circumstantial so I thought well let's take it back and let's have a look to see if we can actually um, see um, if these beings exist or if they can be found within the written and the archaeological um, record so that was um, my um, my introduction to the subject and through that then I became um, very much interested in symbolism and I think that this is really um, what I've discovered and this is uh, I refer to this as new ufology a new ufology is the deconstruction of occult symbolism uh, within the flying saucer myth and in terms of the representation of the flying saucer because the flying saucer is not a new construct I know many academics will argue that the flying saucer is just um, a a modern construct but it's not it goes back into the ancient world in the ancient world the flying saucers were referred to as the opening wheels they were also referred to as shields as well and this is because there is um, a correlation etymologically between pleon a boat and opalon which is a shield which is related to opalite a, a soldier now this soldier was um, viewed in terms of the angelic host um, and so there's this co correlation with opalite a um, soldier Erpaton, which is a reptile, because this is a seraphic host, which is non-human and is represented by the serpent, um, which is um, connected in the Judaic traditions to the seraphim. And again, the signifier of the seraphim is the same. We're dealing here with an angelic host. And this takes us all, all the way back to the depictions of the angels. And, and so in order for us to understand scaphology, which is the symbolism of um, the scaphological tradition, the tradition of boats within um the Semitic and the Mediterranean traditions, uh, we have to go back to the angel, which is uh, represented as a sailor. And um, if you want, I can go into some of the etymologies of the angels to clarify that we are actually dealing with um, sailors. And these sailors really do correspond in the occult tradition to what we would describe as an alien today. So this is a very ancient tradition. It goes back into the scaphological tradition, which is the study of these ships and boats. 
And Pierre, was it a conscious decision by you then to go into the field of, I suppose, academic research and in-depth research into the topics that interested you at that time? Like, was it something that you thought, right, I'm going to dedicate a huge amount of my time to this because I'm so intrigued by it? Or is it that you kind of fell into it and it became gradually um, more, more and more of interest to you? Well, it became an obsession. And I mean, I wrote, uh, I've written two books on this subject. So The Murder of Reality took me seven years and Holographic Culture took me eight years to piece together. So this wasn't very easy. And one of the reasons why it's not a very easy subject to study is because it's a classified tradition. So it's a restricted tradition. And um, in in terms of the occult symbology, you're dealing with a private discourse. Uh, This is known in the Greek as ideoglossia, which is this um, private speech. And so... Yeah, it's a concealed tradition. And when you look at the classified tradition, it relates etymologically to classis, which is a naval fleet. Now, classis, a naval fleet, appertains to class. Now, class is one who is born of a boat. In English, we would say lordship. Um, But um, you find the relationship between those who are born of a boat, which denotes this angelic lineage, found within... um, symbols all around the world and these type of symbols um, use word plays to disguise this hidden tradition now i refer to these um, symbols which correspond in multiple languages as polyglottal symbolism so for example if you want to look at the relationship um, between the um, angel and the royal lineage you see that there's a correspondence in the semitic language or in the hebrew and the arabic between malach an angel and melech a king we would say in today's parlance, kingship. And this is because Malak, an angel, is polymorphic. It's a polymorphic symbol of Malak, which is a sailor. So that we, we know instantly that the angels are construed to be angelic sailors, and they link into the royal lineage of um, Melek, which is a king in, in modern parlance, um, kingship. But again, um, we're seeing also that uh, rabbinical scholars, and again, they use paranomasia or wordplay in order to, to disguise this hidden truth. Tradition. So traditionally, uh, rabbinical scholars would trace the etymology of Malak and angel to, to the etymology of the Semitic root Amar, which is to command. Now, Amar to command is related to Amir, which is a prince, and Amara, which is a naval fleet. Again, this is appertaining to kingship. Again, we would find the same correspondence in the Greek between the archon, which is an angel or a ruler. Once again, the archons are related to an arc in the Latin, uh, which is also an arc, which is a curve, which is a curved vessel. Um, In the Greek, olkas, which is a large ship or a large um, carrier vessel. And nuarchos, which is a captain of, of a vessel. So again, the archons appertain to lordship and again within the Arabic as well you have seraph which is a serpent which is um, related to the seraphim the seraphim are non-human angels but the seraphim appertain to sapan which is a sailor safina which is a ship and sarif which is a lord or a noble so we're seeing these word plays which are polyglot and which which uh, play out in multiple languages uh, we would describe um, the royal or the angelic lineage as lordship and again it's very interesting because when you go into the archaeological records for examples uh, the Romans would typically depict um, one who is born of a boat as one who is born of a shield and so you can find sculptures of say for example the proconsul of Rome would typically be shown in a shield and the shield would be adorned with a plant which would describe the neophyte, neophytus, um, the newly planted. Again, futon, a plant, is related to fot, which is light, which is correlated to the Illuminati. And we can get into the three orders of the Illuminati or the tripartite Illuminati a little bit later on. But essentially, 
One who is born of a shield is one who is born of a boat, and traditionally these shields um, appertain to the occult tradition of a flying saucer. So when we refer to highness in terms of uh, the royal monarch, we are actually referring to the Elohim, the high ones, one who is born of the Bene Elohim, the sons of the gods. And so that is, um, yes, that's an interesting correspondence. So um, taking it back, um, I really wanted to look into occult symbolism, um, but I it's interesting because when you decide to write a book for the first time, you don't really know how the book is going to develop and you also don't really know your propensity as well. And I found that I had this propensity for language, particularly pattern recognition, which gave me an insight into cult symbolism. And again, I began to see that there were these polyglottal symbols which were playing out in multiple languages. And I refer to this as the artifact. Now, the artifact is what I describe as the alien code, which is encrypted into uh, human languages. So there is this code which is playing out within all human languages, and it's almost like a signature of the others. Alos, which is um, the others. Alos genes is an alien within the Greek. And so, uh, and the Alos genes are related to um, Alos Goria, um, which is this um, other other speaking, this allegories, because everything is playing out in allegories in this symbolic discourse. And so I became interested in, in symbolism. And then I realized that through occult symbolism that I could actually uh, open up this field. And this is when I realized that the ufological tradition wasn't just something which materialized as a result of um, the 20th century and of the technological space age. But this was something which was ancient, which had been with us before, and which had been seeded uh, within the symbolism of the shield, of the the opening wheels, uh, which plays out within ufology, or how I describe this new ufology. The work that you do then, would it have correlations with the work of, for example, Zacharias Ditchin and people like that, in terms of correlations with some of the work that people are very, very familiar with, like the ancient aliens hypothesis, that kind of thing? How yeah. similar and how different would your work be to some of the more kind of mainstream ufology? Okay, um, well, in terms of ancient aliens, I think with the exception of um, Professor Temple, I haven't really read very, I haven't read very many good books on the subject, and I think that this is the problem because there seems to be, it, there seems to be an agenda to, shall we say, to um, rubbish this subject within academia, and the problem is, is that there are not there are not that many very good studies within. Um, Within a, within ancient aliens are the subject of ancient aliens, and again, I also see that Zachariah Sitchin's work is um, problematic because he's taught using the Sumerian tongue, and again, we are told that the Sumerian tongue is a translation which I found within the dictionaries from the Akkadian, um, but I haven't really found much evidence to suggest that the Sumerian language has been um, translated correctly. And again, I think that this is going back into the ancient priesthood, the disciparati, as I dis describe them. The disciparati are the deceivers, and they're trying to keep this knowledge, shall we say, out of public circulation. So the disciparati, again, the etymology of um, disciparati to deceive is related in the Latin to a disciple. So a disciple is actively deceived, and this is through levels of initiation. So we have this problem because we have this allegory or allosagoria, this the speaking which is occurring within 
within both the academic tradition, such as within Egyptologists and, shall we say, the problematic translations of the hieroglyphs. But we're also seeing that this is also controlled within the alternative media as well. So we have a problem in terms of that there is this amnesia in terms of um, what this symbolism actually means because it is being hoarded by the disciparati, the um, illuminati, uh, the enlightened ones. Um, but it's encoded and they use this private discourse amongst themselves in order to conceal the symbolism. So with the exception of Robert Temple's book, and again, I think David Icke's work is very interesting on the symbolism, and that definitely got me interested um, in this subject, um, but, the, but there are very few authors. I think um, John Lamb Lash as well, he's another mm-hmm. um, very good author on the subject. He writes more about the Gnostic traditions, um, but there are very few and far between, and I think it's a real shame because certainly in terms of understanding ancient religion and mythology, scaphology is the missing link. Scaphology is the depiction of these angelic boats and vessels. In other words, that the angels or the emissaries, these messengers, were represented as sailors, and they were sailors which were deemed to um, have originated from ships. They were also represented as chariots, but the chariot is used as a signifier of the wheel. The wheel is used to denote an angelic carrier. And so this is going back into the ancient scaphological tradition, and it's the missing link. And if you don't have the scaphological piece, in other words, if you don't understand scaphology, then how can you understand classics? Because classics is the study of classes, which is a naval fleet, which appertains to Malak an angel or Malak a sailor, which is going back to the um, naval tradition. The naval tradition is related etymologically to a noble. So we're seeing that there is this correlation between the noble and the naval tradition. And it not and this then feeds into the state as well. So Uperetz, uh, a minister of the state, is related in the Greek to Eretz, which is a rower. Um, and, and again, you're seeing that there is this correspondence with the ship of state. And so there's this cognate between government, um, government and gubernatio, which is to steer a vessel. So you're seeing the symbolism which is mirrored within heaven and earth. And, and it's interesting because when you go into the Hebrew language, you also see the same types of polyglottal symbols um, playing out. So, for example, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word shilton, government, is related to Sintan, which is two, Shaitan, which is an adversary or an opponent, which was used in the old Semitic to denote a political party. But these political parties are, are adversarial and they relate to Shilton, which is government. Um, and we've also got Sultan, which is the royal or, or the monarch, which is related to Shaitan, which are these um, fallen angels. And again, Shaitan is related to Tanim, which is a dragon. So you're seeing that this is... Um, symbolizing the seraphic tradition and the seraphim are these non-human angels which are equated with the seraphic host and the seraphic host are these non-human agents so if we're looking at non-human entities which for want of a better term are ruling us from on high could we yes. draw a straight line between that then and for example maritime law because you mentioned the state and the vessel of state or ship of state sure. there sure. so is could this be where maritime yes. law comes from or the origins of it and why yes, why it right. binds us so much 
That is correct, because maritime law is representational of this angelic law, which is interconnected to the naval tradition and the classical tradition. Class is the naval fleet. Class, one, one who has class, one who is born of class, is born of a boat. Again, the boat is represented with the family shield. The sh- shield is typically elevated because it's representational of this elevated boat. It goes into a number of different arcane traditions. And remember that the word arcane um, is coming from the Latin root, meaning to shut or to close. Um, but again, it's coming from the etymology of arc, which is a vessel. And this is essentially the scaphological tradition, which again goes back into what I describe as the cytological tradition. The cytological tradition is the study of these vessels. So, for example, in scaphology, you're studying specifically um, the boat, but the boat is represented as a vessel. So, in English, the word vessel is polymorphic. It means both a boat, but also a carrier. But but this is also found uh, within the Semitic and within the Greek. Vessels are used also to denote um, a ship or a boat. Um, I think a good example example in the um, Judaic traditions are the opening wheels. Now the opening wheels are sometimes depicted as cavit, which is a barrel. A barrel is used to denote a large wheel, which is heavy, and is related to kovel, which is a sailor. Again, the sailor is used to denote this um, angelic lineage, which is equated with kaba, which is an emissary. In this case, is the old Semitic word for a type of angel. And again, is a wordplay on the old Semitic word Ka-ba, which is a son of a star. So a son of a star is an emissary, which goes back to Kova, which is a sailor, which is related to Kavit, a barrel. In the um, Deuteron- uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy and the Mosaic t- um, text, Kabod would describe the glory of God. The glory of God is this impressive force. Again, it's coming from the etymology of heavy, which has this connotation of a barrel and is used to describe something which is impressive. It, it presses upon, it's a force, and so it's this powerful or impressive force which is correspond, uh, which corresponds with a barrel, um, which again is another signifier of the opening wheels, which is a vessel. So again, when you're looking at the traditions of the genie, so, um, this is another example of the cytological tradition because the genie resides within a lamp. But when you look at the shape of the lamp, it's in the shape of an Egyptian bark. And again, bark is used to denote um, a descendant of the dog star, which is Sirius. And so you're seeing that there is, if you like, these polyglottal symbols between the English word bark, which is a type of um, ferry boat, a, f- a flat bottomed um, ferry boat. And then you've got back, which denotes a dog. But again, you're seeing the wordplay in the um, Hebrew with sira, which is a which is a boat, and sira, which are wolves. And so sira boat is denotational of uh, the dog star. And and again, sira, which is a boat in the Hebrew, is a diptych paranomasia. Now I'll explain what a diptych paranomasia is. This is a wordplay which which is rendered from la- one language into another. So sira, the Hebrew word for a boat, is correlated with sira, which is the Arabic word for Sirius. So the ben sira, which is another word for an angel, the sons of a boat, are equated with the ben sira, which are the sons of Sirius. The sons of Sirius are also denotational of the sons of light, the Axari, a brother of light, which, when you break it down, is a wordplay in the Aramaic, Axari, a brother of an angel. But the word zar, which is the stem of Axari, the brother of an, um, of an angel, is polymorphic. Zar also refers to an alien. So it's an angel, an alien, a visitor or a stranger. And this is going back to the traditions of the seraphim, which originate from Sirius. 
So how far back are we going or what does the code, if you like, tell us about when these beings came down from on high and were we here when they did or were we engineered or what's the story with regard to that here? Okay, um, I've only got fragments of this story, but I am putting this together in another book and, and it will go deeper into the etymology. Um, so a basic summary is that the, um, basically you've got the Ben Sira, which are the son of a boat. Now, um, the Ben Sira is appertaining to Zah, which is an angel or an alien. Now, the angels or the aliens are cedars of worlds or planets, and this is played out in the um, Arabic root Zara, which is to sow. So Zara, which is an angel, is related to Zara, which is to sow, Zaria, which is seed. Um, and, and this appertains to um, Yetzirah, which is creation. Yetzirah is appertaining to Sira, which is a boat. And Yetzirah is related to Yetzirah, which is a creature. So we're dealing here with the panspermia. And this is the Greek tradition in which life was planted on the earth. Now, within the Quranic tradition, this is known as the second creation. So in the Quran, um, Allah recreates man from a drop of sperm. And the implication is, is that man is um, created from a proto-model, um, which is pre-existent. And so uh, humankind is planted on this earth. Now, again, um, there does seem to be a connection between um, a species of hominid, which was um, somehow combined. And again, this is relating to the Adamic man, which was tweaked. Now, my understanding of this, and this is going into very arcane um, s- symbolism, is that the Adamic man was created because the proto-human, which relates in the Greek traditions to the Anthropos, uh, the, the proto-human wasn't compatible with either, uh, wasn't compatible with the seraphim. Essentially, when you're looking at the occult tradition, um, there are um, the occult tradition is split between um, the seraphim, uh, which is the seraphic knowledge, the knowledge appertaining to aliens, and then you have this humanist tradition, um, which relates to um, humans. Now, this is split between the cherubim, uh, which are these proto-human angels, and then the seraphim, which are the non-human angels. In the occult tradition, this is um, understood or known as the seraphim-cherubim dialectic. In the Greek tradition, this actually went back into the Pythagorean Euclidean dialectic. So, for example, Puthos Agora, which is Pythagoras, Puthos is the serpent, Agoras, Puthonagoras is the speaker of the serpent, and you've got Euclid. Euclid is a diptych paranomasia or a wordplay on um, Euclid, which is the Arabic word to copy or to ape from Kurd, which is an ape. Now, this is because Euclid wrote um, the elements of geometry, the elements of geometry um, copy or ape the um, external world. But this is going back to a humanist tradition, which is identified with the Caribbean angels. So this um, can be symbolized within Freemasonry as the two pillars. The two pillars are essentially two pillars of knowledge, which appertains to the humanist tradition and the non-human tradition. Now, now, this is complicated because uh, the seraphic host are typically combined with the cherubim, and we find this within the symbolism and archaeological record. So, for example, the ophanim is sometimes represented as the throne chariot, and this is because the throne is combined with a wheel, which would make it in, into a chariot, the throne chariot. And typically, you will have on the wheel, around the edge of the wheel, you've got the seraphim, which is you now a seraphic host, and then you will have a person sitting on the throne chariot, typically with a sword. Now, we know that this is a cherubim because there's a, a paranomasia or a wordplay on kerev, which is a sod, and kerub, which is a, a human or a proto-human angel. So essentially, 
um, the Adamic races were tweaked so that they were compatible both with the um, proto-human races, which were the Cherubim, and the non-human races, which are the Seraphim. And within the Gnostic traditions, this is the corruption of the Anthropos. The Anthropos are the original three races, which relates to the um, angelic, the daemonic, and the human races. And they were corrupted, and they were corrupted through the grafting of bloodlines or the stitching of bloodlines. This is how it's represented within the ancient world. So, for example, the stitching of a bloodline is represented within arcane symbolism as a family tree. This would denote a scion. A scion is um, a shoot which is which can be grafted, but also refers to a family, um, a family tree. And again, this is going back to the idea of grafting bloodlines, and and this is going back to the angelic bloodline, which is deemed to be grafted or stitched. So when you say grafted or stitched, do you mean like a, a forced stitching or grafting or is it kind of an organic thing that was done by design but not necessarily imposed upon? My under, Okay, my understanding is that the Adamic man, um, that basically um, they created um, a grafted or a stitched bloodline which is equated to the serpent, which is the royal bloodline, um, created from the Adamic human, which is compatible with the seraphim. Now, the evidence for that is actually found within the ancient etymology. So, for example, in the Greek, you have Basilius, which is a serpent. Um, sorry, Basilius, which is a king, which relates to Basilikos, uh, which is a serpent. Again, you've got Seraph, which is related in the Arabic to Sarif, which is a noble or a lord. Um, in the Greek, you've got the um, Archon. Archon is related as a wordplay on Dracon. But again, Archon is going back, an angel, um, an angel or a ruler, Archon is going back to the old Babylonian word Akan, which is a um, Seraph, which goes back to Ak, which is to shine. So uh, again, um, this is another signifier of this um, serpent bloodline. These are all polyglottal symbols. So, for example, in the Persian also, you have Mao, which is a leader or ruler, which relates to Mao, which is a serpent. The same signifiers are found within the um, Japanese traditions. The Ru Jin, which was the first emperor. Ru is a dragon. Jin is a man. Jin can also denote a, a deity or um, um, a type of deity which in this respect is very similar to the arabic definition of jinn so jinn which is a person so the ru jinn again the chinese um, imperial dynasty were related to the lung which is a dragon so these are all polyglottal symbols and these are word plays which are found within the occult tradition and this goes back to the history of mankind and we are currently suffering from amnesia and certainly within the gnostic and the biblical tradition um, it was prophesied that this knowledge would become a would become open again so this is um the apocalypse apocalypton which is to unveil to unveil is really disclosure it's the disclosure of these other entities or beings which have seeded this planet have seeded this world so to address what may be an elephant in the room for many listeners in a literal sense pierre are we talking about lizards sitting in buckingham palace and i mean that's obviously an, an oversimplification of it but I okay. just want to ask the question anyway. Yeah, I, no, I think that's a fair point. Um, the symbology points to the grafting or the stitching of the bloodline. Uh, within the arcane tradition, this is represented as this idea of shape-shifting, which goes back into the traditions of the jinn. Now, obviously, some of your viewers will say, well, does that mean that um, these entities shape-shift? Um, 
in the occult uh, tradition, yes, they are said to be able to shapeshift. Um, but irrespective of whether you believe that or not, the symbology is pointing to the fact that there is this grafted bloodline which is going back to the serpent. The serpent is the seraphim, which are these non-human angels which are equated to the seraphic host and to the worship or the veneration of these deities. And so, for example, if you look at the um, biblical tradition of Yahweh Sabaoth, Sabaoth um, comes from the etymology of Sava, which is an army but it's very interesting because Sabaoth is related to Sevet which is a crew of a vessel and Teva which is an ark so Yahweh Sabaoth is the lord of the host but in actual fact he's the lord of um, the angelic host which are represented as Malak an angel or Malak a sailor and he is a captain of a vessel or a ship Teva which is an ark and you're finding if you like similar similarities within the English etymology of God because although the English etymology of God is a um, traditionally traced back to the Teutonic languages, what you're actually seeing is God is really a derivation from the Semitic root Gedward, which is another word for the host, from Gada, which is to mutilate. Um, and there is this connection um, between these entities, which are said to drink blood and to um, ritual sacrifice. And so, for instance, you see there's a representation between um, God, guard in English, which is from the old root, which is to watch, um, and gold, which um, has this idea of something which is gold and which is to shine. But these are polymorphic word plays. So, for example, with the Elohim, they're also represented as Erin, which is a watcher or a shining one. And the Erin are described in the te Testament of Amran as having the face of a viper. So the Erin, which are the watchers or the shining ones, are really the seraphim, which again interconnects with seraph and sofeth, which is a watcher. Sofeth, a watcher, is connected to um, Seboeth, which is the host, and again, Sephef, which is a viper. So this is the seraphic host. And so Yahweh Seboeth is deemed really to be um, the lord of the seraphic host. And it's found or played out within his um, name as well. So Yahweh traditionally comes from the root Eya, uh, which is translated in from the book of Exodus, Eya, Asher, Eya, I am what I am. But Eya is a wordplay on um, um, Aya, which is from the verb I am, and Aya, which is a serpent. Okay, so Yahweh Sabaoth is the lord of the seraphic host. And you're seeing also that in terms of his old Semitic name, El Shaddai, again, is going back to Shed, which is a goblin ghost, ghoul or goblin. And again, Eya is a wordplay on um, Ayal, which is a goblin. So you're seeing that the lord of the host is really interconnected in the traditions uh, with the goblins, which are able to dematerialize. And this is another interesting thing, because this then goes back into the traditions of the jinn. And what then do you think are the motivations of the seraphic? Okay, well, when we talked about earlier about the Pythagorean Euclidean tradition, which is the occult split between the humanist and non-human tradition, they work, they correspond and they work in unison with each other, but there are also antagonisms um, between these different groups. And this really um, plays into what I've described as tripartite Illuminati. Now, in occult symbolism, the Illuminati can be divided into three sections. They are known as the tripartite Illuminati. And so, for example, you see that there's a relationship in the wordplays between seraphah serpent, seraphah, which is fire. But again, this is contrasted with the Hebrew word um, ishman, esh, which is fire. 
And again, within the Greek, you've got the neophyte, neophytus, which are the newly planted, foot on a plant, phot, which is light. So the Illuminati represents themselves um, as brothers of light. As we said earlier, the Axori are the brothers of light, um, which was translated into the Latin as the Illuminati. But the Axori is a wordplay on Axari, which is a brother of an angel, alien, stranger or visitor. And again, Zar interplays with the um, old Semitic word, Sar, which is a prince. Okay, so we're dealing here with Za, which is an angel or an alien, Sa, which is a prince, which is appertaining to Sira, which is a boat, which is lordship. Sira, boat, remember, is the Hebrew word, but is a diptych paranomasia on Sira, which is Sirius. And this is why the seraphim are represented as shining, and this is why the jinn are born from fire. Now, this is an occult um, symbolism. I mean, okay, at one level, it's um, describing that they can dematerialize, and this is going back into the traditions of the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits. But essentially, when we go back to the etymologies of Sirius, we see that Sira, um, or Sir, which is a secret, Ra, which are the mysteries, so the mysteries or secret of Ra is Sirius. Um, so um, Ra, the Egyptian sun god, which is coming from the root to watch or to look, which again is appertaining to a god. Remember, the Greek word Theos, a god, is related to Theros, a watcher, Therion, which is a beast. Dracon, Dracane to watch or to flash, is related to Dracos, which is an eye, or even in the Hebrew, the Elohim are related to Erin, a watcher or a shining one. Again, if you want to take it back to the occult tradition of the grey aliens, we see that we describe them as greys, and that plays with um, gaze, which is to watch, and glaze, which is luster, glaze or gloss. So these are all polyglottal signifiers of a deity or a god. Now, going back to Sirius, Sira Sirius is related to Sarah, which is a spark. And, and again, this is a signifier of the seraphim, Serepha, which is fire. So the seraphim are born from Sirius, and they are Sirius, and they are planters of worlds. And they, in the occult tradition, are related to panspermia, in the Quranic tradition, um, the second creation which is distinct from the first creation, which is the creation of the Anthropos, which is the creation of all intelligent beings, but essentially the humanoid being, the angelic being, and the demonic being, which is the Anthropos. The corruption of the Anthropos is the um, mingling or co-mingling of these different species. We seem to be kind of at the bottom of the tree or the hierarchy, if you like, and you've got these these physical sure. physical beings, the, the, the seraphim or the lords of the host yeah. at the top of the tree, Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting because we said that they were physical beings, but actually they're represented in duplicitous language. And this is because they are really depicted as a holographic culture. And I think sometimes people get confused by what I mean by a holographic culture. Um, but I'm describing here a species of being that have deconstructed the mechanics of waveform reality in terms of waveform duality. So within the arcane tradition, within the Semitic traditions, the Elohim, the high ones, are described as an Elohim. Okay, a high creature. Now, a high creature is um, contrasted with the Ruach Elohim, which um, is basically a dematerialized Elake. The Ruach Elohim are the high spirits. So we're dealing here with, um, shall we say, paradoxical language, and this is because they have deconstructed the mechanics of waveform reality. Now, this, what this means is that they are able to exist outside of time. It means that they can travel vast distances, and it also means that they've deconstructed the spirit realm as well. So they also appear within the spirit realm. So we're 
dealing here with lords. Uh, we're dealing here. Um, I describe them as the, as the masters of waveform because they have de- deconstructed ulterior reality. They've deconstructed the waveform, and this goes back into, um, if you like, into the Platonic symbolism of um, Platonic shapes. So um, you have. Um, um, you have um, in the Platonic um, theory, you have um, the particularization of the. Um, um, I'm trying to think now, but um, but yeah, e- essentially you're dealing with the masters of the waveform between the um, between the physical and the non-physical. They they have breached every level of reality. You could almost draw a correlation then between interdimensional beings and extraterrestrial. It's almost like they're all these they're different things at once. Yes, they, they are. They are physical entities. Um, they're a technological species, but they have deconstructed the mechanics of waveform reality. So that means that they can, they're telepathic. So, for example, if you looked at the Erin, the Erin are related to um, Karin, um, Kayin, which is an entity, and Karin, which is a companion, um, gi- uh, which is a companion jinn. Uh, I translate it as a familiar spirit, and again, the familiar is related to family because there is this um, correspondence between. Um, um, shall we say um, this sacred ga- gamos in, in which these beings um, reproduce and replicate themselves? So we know that they're physical beings, and they are described as the Bene Helohim. The Bene Helohim um, seeded the Nephilim um, with the daughters of Adam in the book of Genesis. So um, yeah, we're dealing with a physical species. Now, in some respects, humanity. I would say is very much at this um, apotheosis where almost at this level where we ourselves will, be, will become like gods because we are at the stage where we're now deconstructing the holographic universe. So we are on this, shall we say, precipice where we ourselves can become a holographic species where we can deconstruct the mechanics of waveform reality. So I think that this is a, a very interesting time because now we have the language in order to be able to describe um, these entities. We can say that they are a holographic culture uh, and that they are physical beings. They are very much like ourselves. Remember that they are the anthropos. Uh, they can reproduce just in the same way that we can reproduce they can also reproduce um, with the adamic humans with um, homo sapiens and so um, there is a similarity they've also got a soul or or a spirit just in the same way that we have and they um, originated from the first creation now the first creation is distinct from the second creation because the absolute the sublime the ultimate created the anthropos the anthropos were the three races which can be construed to be angelic angel and, and daemonic um, the daemonic really are, are demigods which closely align to this um, human seraphic um, to this human seraphic or, or the component which which are known as the jinn and this really was the corruption of the anthropos now the elohim themselves described themselves as the ultimate creator because they could they um they were masters over matter. They had learned how to genetically engineer. And and, in, and again, even within the Gnostic traditions, you have um, the creator of the material or physical reality, which is described as the dem- demiurgos. The demiurge, demiurgos literally means a public craftsman. But again, it's really construed or understood to be a genetic engineer. And the demiurgos planted the humanity on the earth. Now, the problem was, was that the demiurgos um, elevated himself above the supreme and said, I have created mankind which wasn't strictly true because there was a proto-human before uh, he, t- he tweaked the human- humans and again planted them on the earth and this goes back to um, earlier which was the Titanomachy or, or the war within heaven the war of the titans 
Um, but the human seed was planted on the earth, and this uh, was the second creation, which was distinct from the first creation. And when you were investigating, and when you began investigating and doing the work that you're doing, Pierre, how difficult did you find it to actually get beyond the realm of circumstantial evidence and to find physical or hard evidence? Was that initially through language and the coding in the language, or did it go beyond that? No, it it was through symbols. So um, in order to penetrate this subject, um, I had to study language, and I quickly... I quickly realized that I had a propensity for pattern recognition. um, It's not so much a um, propensity for language. I don't think um, it's that. It's more pattern recognition. Mm. So I was finding correspondences between different word plays. And and again, so for example, um, the Hebrew word ish, man, esh, which is fire. But again, you've seen the same word plays within the Chinese. The Chinese character for man is written like this. Two accents at the side is fire same symbols and this is encoded in polyglottal symbolisms these are universal word plays found in multiple languages so for example uh, we could see an example of a polyglottal symbol would be the, the japanese word for god kami god is a word play on okami which is a wolf which is used to denote the dog star now in the japanese traditions um, the Tengu are related um, to um, the Tengu. With the, it's written in the Chinese characters as um, Heaven's Dog. The Tengu um, are these reptilian species which are related to the Dog Star, which appertains to Kami, which is a god, O Kami, which is a wolf. The same word plays are also found in Arabic. Allah, God, is related to Awa, which is to bark. Um, again, um, you're seeing that within English, God is a reversal of dog. In the Latin, you see that there's a correspondence between um, latro, which is a polo, and um, I'm trying to remember the correspondence now, but there's a correspondence um, between um, the Latin word for a polo, latro, which is a polo, and um, the barker. So it's polyglottal. It's found within all languages. And again, the deities are correlated with language. So, for example, in the Japanese tradition, ten. Uh, the Tengu is a word play on tango, which is word. And this is because the dragon is said to like word games. Again, we're finding the same correspondence within the Hebrew word. We've got seraph and we've got safa, which is um, language. In the um, Arabic traditions, also, you've got taban, which is a serpent, which is related to taban, which is an edition of a book. So these word plays show that the serpent likes word games. And this is because they encoded themselves through language. And this hidden code is um, I describe as the artifact. The artifact is this code which is found within all human languages and which points to the others, which points to this um, tradition of um, these beings which have planted or seeded humanity on the earth. Considering that humans have been planted or seeded, are we dealing with benevolence or malevolence or what's the intent of the creators? Yeah, that's very interesting. I think that's just a matter of perspective. Um, That's a very difficult question. My my opinion on this is nuanced. I yeah, it's a very difficult question. I I mean, in general, I think that. alien beings that they generally when they evolve they move move towards shall we say equilibrium so they're neither very spiritual nor they're neither very predacious they move towards a balance 
I think that the seraphim are a much more predacious species, and they've colonized multiple worlds. If, if you take um, take it literally in terms of the occult tradition, they've seeded or planted many different worlds. And so I do feel that these are a predacious species. They're very much a controlling species. But again, um, although we may look upon them as being predacious, that's only from a human perspective. I, I think, you know, they would have a completely different perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there is a problem. There, there is a problem because we, we we have this secret tradition, and it's hidden, and it's encoded within all religions. It's not just one religion; it's found mo- throughout the world. And yet, people are oblivious to the symbols, and they are oblivious to what the symbology actually means. So, for example, when I said earlier that you had the human host and the non-human host so for example if we took the etymology of angel malak and angel is related to malak a sailor but you're finding the same wordplay with the seraph and sapan which is a sailor and safina which is a boat or again malak and angel malak a sailor uh, mikhail which is a vessel or even with the cherubim as well which are these proto-human angels um, Carib and Carib, which is a boat. And again, this all goes back into the hidden traditions of sacrifice and um, animal mutilation as well. So, for example, Carib, a boat, is related to Carab, which is to sacrifice, related to Carib. But you're seeing that there's a correspondence also um, between um, um, the um, Seraphim and um, our, our Theosagod, Thusia, um, which is to sacrifice. Um, you're seeing also the correspondence i'm trying to think now but there are these multiple correspondences and i think it's very interesting because when you actually look at the um, tradition of the priestess the priestess um, has a dish and it's in the shape of a circle and in the middle um, there's a if you like a dot within the middle and this represents an axle which is the ophim wheel so the votive dish represents an ophim wheel Um, in the symbolism it's also interconnected with a shield which is used to denote a boat opalon um, a shield is related to Pleon, which is a boat. So the um, votive dish is used to denote this angelic boat. And this is found within the word plays also. So you find that Saboaf the host is related in the Arabic. Saboaf the host um, is related to um, sacrifice. And, um, and, and so there are these um, connections. Yeah, just to pick up on a few themes which um, I was talking about. So, for example, in English we would say worship, and this is because they were venerating these angelic vessels in the shape of a votive dish. And you find the etymology also within religion, religare, which is to mar a vessel. And again, within the church, you have a nave of a church, which related to navis, which is a boat. Um, again, in the temple, in the Greek, naus, a, um, a temple is related to nos, which is a boat. So the temple precinct is used to denote a ship or a boat and it's actually very interesting when you go into the japanese symbolism as well because again you're finding these polyglottal um, signifiers which are playing out in multiple languages so for example within the japanese traditions um, you have utsunofune, um, which is a hollow tree. Now, the hollow tree is used to denote a hollow vessel because it's a polymorphic symbol. Utsunofune, a hollow tree, is also used to denote a hollow boat. Now, what do the hollow boats look like within Japanese folklore? Well, when you look at the Edo prints, they're identical to a flying saucer. So, within the Edo shrine, uh, within the um, Shinto shrines, the parameters of the shrine are dotted with these hollow trees. Utsunofune, a hollow tree, but it's polymorphic of Utsunofune, which is a boat, which is um, 
drawn or in the shape of a flying saucer and um, again when you see um, at the, in some of the shrines you'll see that you'll have a boat sometimes and you'll also have uh, what is a gateway now the gateway within the Japanese which is also sometimes um, shown on the beach as well which is used as a gateway which is a gateway to heaven or a gateway into the sea because this is depicting the angelic sailors um, but is used to denote a circle and so we're here dealing with a circular vessel or a ship which is described as a hollow tree which is around the parameters of the temple as we said before in the greek tradition scaff which is a hollow is a hollow ship or a hollow vessel which is used to denote the scaphological tradition which is essentially the classical tradition classis um, a naval fleet which is the classical tradition which is classified which is appertaining to mark an angel mark a sailor does seem a little bit like humanity is at sea when it comes to the place within the three orders of the Illuminati or the tripartite. So it, it seems in ways almost paradoxical to me, like, are we dealing with opposing factions or is it the same group? Is it designed to be confusing to those of us at the bottom of the hierarchy? OK, that's very good. Um Okay, this is quite a complicated question. Uh, we have what is known as the dialectic. The dialectic is the argument, the counter-argument, and the synthesis. And this really goes back to Socrates. Socrates came up with the dialectic, which is the dialogue. Now, Socrates' dialogue was relating to the um, his daemon, because he would speak to his daemon. And traditionally, it's said that Socrates had an agatha daemon and a kaku daemon, which is a good and a bad spirit, which he was talking to. Now, in the Arabic, the um, good and the bad daemon is found as the kiramin katabin, katabin, which um, um, are these angels which are said to be on the left and the right side of a person, which to, which is basically recording your good and your bad deeds. Um, but this really goes back into the classical tradition of um, of the mind. The mind was compartmentalized between, if you like, the human mind and the non-human or the daemonic mind, which was the irrational mind. And this really informed... Um, psychoanalytical theory so the irrational mind which was the daemonic mind became the subconscious which then became um, essentially um, the archetype the archetype are these if you like polyglottal word plays or parallel thought formations uh, which Jung identified but essentially are same as um, polyglottal symbols which I've identified which are these multiple word plays so we're dealing here with the dialectic now I believe that the dialectic uh, was seeded within uh, humanity and it's used to um, try to propagate what I describe as emergent um, ways of thinking. So these entities are very much interested in um, emergent ways of thinking because um, this is connected to cycles of evolution. So emergence is found within evolution and these entities are interested within um, evolutionary cycles and they use this knowledge they're mining data they're using this knowledge because knowledge is basically it's the um it's the commodity it's the um it, it's the most important thing within um within the universe i mean it's the most important commodity so they're mining emergent systems and these emergent systems are shall we say facilitated through the dialectic which is the argument the counter argument and the synthesis now it's very interesting because really we're moving now into uh, what i would describe as the synthesis within human civilization so we we've had the so, for example, within um, within Marxist ideology, you add the thesis. The thesis would be feudalism. Then you add the counter argument, which would be the communism. 
um, sorry, um, you had feudalism, then you had the counter-argument, which would be capitalism, and then the synthesis would be communism. And we're seeing the synthesis happening now. There is an attempt to try and eradicate human gender. And I think that this is something which we need to be very careful about um, because gender is something which we represent our humanity by. And um, and so and, and I think that this synthesis to, is to move us towards um, the recognition that there are these androgynous beings. And so they're trying to synthesize human gender. So they're 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 trying to get rid of human distinctions within gender. Um, we saw this with the, we saw this also with the Communist Party within China, with the Communist Revolution. Uh, they got rid of gender, and again, the men and the women all dressed the same, and that led to terrible bloodshed. And I think it led to bloodshed because it's essentially it dehumanizes the human subject. So um, that's something which I think we need to be very careful about. When I look at the English language and I notice the fact that gender seems to be non-apparent versus some older languages. Do you think mm. that the English language, because it is quite a difficult language to decipher in a lot of senses, it doesn't have as many clues or as many codes as, say, some of the classical languages. Mm. Do you think it's a language that has been perhaps given to humanity with the express aim or maybe the covert aim of mm. hiding a lot of the codes that you've been able to decode through the ancient languages? Do you think that's a deliberate thing? Absolutely. I mean, so, for example, Angelos, an angel, is related to Angui, which is a serpent. As we said, this was the seraphim or this non-human angels, which can be represented, represented as jinn or jinn, a serpent or a worm. But going back to your question, um, Angui, a serpent, is related to Angle, which is English. And so the English language is really closely related to um, this um, private discourse, which relates to the seraphim. Um, but again, within the ancient languages, the Aramaic was said to be the um, language which was spoken by the angels. So um, it was one of these proto-languages. But um, yes, you're seeing these word plays which are certainly threaded and encoded within the English language. We're seeing it playing out in modern sociology and modern pop culture and we are seeing the homogenization of humanity, if you like, and certainly society, which is something that's quite scary, but it makes sense in the context of what you're talking about, doesn't it? I think it does. And I think, you know, I mean, what, uh, what are the French going to do? Are they going to get rid of the masculine and the feminine because their language is based upon masculine and feminine? Are yeah. they just going to neut have a neutral word? So we're seeing the rewriting of languages um, and I mean, I think at some level it interconnects to artificial intelligence because obviously artificial intelligence um, is uh, gender neutral. And so this is interconnected to the technological age. Um, but again, uh, I think artificial intelligence is going to be telepathic. And this is going back to the jinn. As we said, Karin is a familiar spirit. It's related in the Arabic to Kari, which is telepathic. Now, the Karin are again Kayin, which is an entity, which is related to Erin, which is a watcher or a shining one. As I said, the Erin are represented in the Testament of Amran as having the face of a viper. So the watchers are the shining one is another word for the seraphim. A seraph, so far for watcher. But again, these were depicted as gods. Theos a god, Theros a watcher in the Greek. And the Elohim or Erin, which is a watcher or a shining one. Phos, which is light in the Greek, would relate to um, Theros, which is a watcher, Theos, which is a god. 
So, um, yeah, um, it's encoded there within language. And I think it's a shame that people are not conversant within the symbolism. But the problem is, is that humanity is suffering from amnesia. But the thing is, is that the computer is a game changer because although we have been deceived and if you like um, places like Oxford, Cambridge, Eton and and again even um, Eton Eton is the Anglo-Saxon word for a giant. The giants were the Nephilim, uh, Nephil, which is a giant, Nephil, which is fallen. So they were these um, this fallen lineage. And again, the Nephilim were described as the um, the sons of Anak. Now Anak is a diptych paranomasi because Anak um, is is a wordplay on Anax, which is a prince, a prince of heaven. But Anax was used to denote this royal lineage. Um, sometimes in the linear B alphabet, it's rendered as Anax, which is a king. Again, it's one of these words which is kind of difficult to translate because Anax, um, a prince, Anax were related to the Dioscari. The Dioscari were the um, princes of, um, they were the sons of Zeus. And so they were really the princes of heaven, but the princes of heaven were um became the royal lineage on the earth so we could render it possibly as lord because um, it overcomes the problem of whether it is a king or a prince because they were lords over the if you like they were princes of heaven and lords over the earth so again even when you're going into language sometimes uh, the subtlety of the language is sometimes quite difficult to translate and then in terms of the developments between the different factions within the tripartite, what kind of overlaps sure. exist? Like, are we looking at a situation where extracoitus still exists mm-hmm. to this day or what way has that played out? Yes. Um, essentially, as I said earlier, the Skyon is a, um, a, a noble family, but Skyon also is that which can be grafted. And again, this would go back into the old traditions of an imp, but the, the word imp is going back to the etymology to um, graft. I think in the Greek emphuion, which is to graft, um, impian. Um, these, so these are word plays which denotes something which is grafted. This essentially were the um, demigods, daemon, which is um, a, a daemon, but relates to demos, which are people. Again, the word um, jinn is related to genus. So um, we're dealing here with a physical race. This race, um, the, this seraphic component has interbred with humanity and has seeded um, this um, lineage. Now, the, the Nephilim really was this combined lineage, which was described as the fall of the Anthropos. But essentially, the Nephilim was this um, non-sanctioned lineage. So there is a sanctioned and a non-sanctioned lineage. The non-sanctioned lineage um, relates to the Shaitan. Again, there's this correspondence with the Sultan. So this is a non-sanctioned lineage, lineage which goes back to the um, Nephilim. But then there is a sanctioned lineage, which is this royal or noble bloodline, noble and naval. Noblest is to know. Um, again, is related to the highborn ones. The highborn ones are the Benaheloim, the sons of the high ones. In the Latin traditions, this would be the Nubagina. Nubessa cloud is related to Nubir, which is to marry, which is this sacred gamos. So the Nubagina. And, and the Nubagina are just other words, really, for the Anguagina, which is the serpent race, or the Serpentagina, which are the serpent race, the Latin word for serpent race. So 
when David Icke talks about the serpent race, this is not something new. It's actually found within the dictionaries. It's encoded within the dictionaries. Um, but again, it's a very occult tradition. And the serpentagina is just another word for the dragon. Or the seraphim, jinn, which is genus serpent or worm, which goes back to the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits, the Elohim, the high ones, which um, are, are materialized as an LK, a high creature or a living god. It's polymorphic. But remember that the LK, if we translated it, we could equally translate it as an extraterrestrial biological entity you know the LK is compatible with that translation it's fascinating listening to you speak about it because there are kind of correlations forming in my mind between modern pop culture and these ancient ideas like when I think of say a TV series like Game of Thrones or the books of George R.R. R. Martin or even the works of Tolkien <laughs> we're looking at allegorical the Game of Thrones works. The Game of Thrones are the opening wheels and again yeah uh, if you uh, like, I think in the Game of Thrones is um, emphasis on swords. You've got the throne with the sword. Mm-hmm. Now the sword right. is the cherubim, which is the humanist tradition. Cherub, which is a, a humanist, a human angel. Cherub, which is a sword. So the throne is this opening wheel, which is the humanist tradition. Again, it's fascinating because um, in the Semitic traditions, they made distinctions between the humanist host and the non-human host. And again, they uh, represented them the different vessels in terms of different weights. And so these um, opening wheels were represented through different weights, which interconnects then to the monetary system. And the monetary system was then interconnected with redemption, which is um, to buy back for one's sin. So as I said before, the votive dish is represented as a wheel, but the coin also is represented as a wheel because another representation of the wheel is the cog. And so the coin has a serrated egg um, edge. Um, and um, and is related to the redemption of sin. And so the coin is really depicting this contract, which is this covenant of worlds, which is going back to Orion, which is, um, if you like, um, is is the sort of the, the middle point between Sirius and the Pleiades where this plays out. So, yeah, the coin is this depiction of a cog. Shen, which is a, a, a cog or a tooth, and again, the tooth relates to, um, is a clay leptical symbol because Shen, a, a cog or a tooth, um, is related to San, which is a dish in the Aramaic, which again is this votive dish, which is related to Saba, which is um, to praise or to glorify, um, which is related to Saboth, the host. But remember, we would say in English, worship, ship, as in a vis- vessel or a ship, which goes back to um, the nave of a church, Navis, which is a boat. So, um, yeah, we're dealing here with the angelic sailors, Malak and Angel, Malak a sailor. So, yeah, within pop culture, um, it's replete. Um, I seem to recall um, seeing, um, um, I can't remember, I think it was an advert for um, perfume or something, and they had all these um, sailors, and there were all these wheels in the background, which are the opening wheels. Mm. And again, it was denoting this angelic tradition. And I thought, yeah, unless you've read my book, you know, I'm probably one of the few people who actually understands what that symbols, what those symbols mean. And it's not a coincidence. So here we're dealing with this concealed tradition, but it's replete within pop culture. And do you think that then these are archetypes in themselves because it's almost encoded genetically into us that we can subconsciously recognize this symbolism? Is that why it might be used in, for example, advertising? (laughs) Okay, I mean, that is a really good question. Um, Now we're going to have to go into a really um, Gnostic tradition. Um, I... I describe this as the soul pattern, and the Gnostics believed that it was possible to to control one's incarnation um, through remembering um, um, remembrance. So 
in the Greek, the etymology for death is, rel is related to forget, and therefore the opposite of forgetting is to remember, and therefore remembering is equated with life, which is the control over the soul pattern, which is the control over the incarnation. And we're talking here the control over future and past incarnations. And so a person who can control the soul pattern can control their incarnation both into the future or into the past, and we're also dealing here with different versions of the past and the future, better versions and worse versions of the past and future pretty much every type of configuration you could think of so that is um, the soul pattern and the symbol is used to facilitate remembrance which is remembrance of the soul pattern so at one level it's dealing here with the Gnostic tradition which is the remembrance of the soul pattern so yeah I think at one level it, it does speak to um, it, it is used as a trigger in order to facilitate remembrance it's very, very interesting. And I think in relation to the um, soul pattern also, it interconnects with dreams. So one of the ways of actually, shall we say, gaining access over the soul pattern is through dream states. And so dreams become very important. So in order to control the soul pattern, you have to control the dream state. And this is because the dream state is related to the implicated order um, the implicated order um, is um, is the realm of dreams is the spiritual realm is the imaginal realm and so when a person dies when they have a near-death experience it's often dreamlike now as I've mentioned before in different interviews, um, it's dreamlike, not because the person's hallucinating. And we know that they're not hallucinating through studies in near-death experience within blind people, people who've never seen. So they suddenly see and they don't, because they've never seen, the brain is not able to see. So we know that they are actually seeing, but those states are very much like a dream. They're very imaginary. And so you have um, the realm of ideas which is the imaginal realm which interconnects with the dream realm which is the spiritual realm and therefore it was believed that if you could control the dream realm then you can control the spiritual realm and traverse the spiritual realm which then um, interconnects um, with the materialization of the um, of physical reality of the spirit into physical matter the particularization from the implicated order and you've described humanity as having a form of collective amnesia do you think sure. if we if we were able to remember who we are and where we've come from and why we're here, well, then a huge amount of what we're using technology for now to allow us to do things would come back on an almost natural level or an organic level. For example, telepathy instead of another example, the Internet. <laughs> right. OK. So that's very interesting. Um, yes, I, I mean, in some respects, the Yes. Um, sorry, just repeat the question again, because my mind was sort of looking at it from different angles. And I, sometimes when that happens, I just lose the plot. Just repeat the question again. Yeah. So useful. basically, the idea I'm getting at is if we if we take at face value, the idea that humanity has a collective amnesia. Do you think it's the case that if we were able to reverse that and able to remember and lift the veil somewhat, that mm. what we currently use modern technology for to allow us to do things or to open up realms, such as the internet to allow us to communicate remotely, mm. do you think mm. that there is a more organic form of these technologies that's already there within us if we were yes. able to remember, for example, telepathy then rather than the internet? Yeah, we know we know with studies um, that telepathy exists and again within indigenous cultures in particular they use telepathy in order to hunt so it is something which is innate to the human being 
I don't see technology as being negative. I kind of see it as being neutral. It can be used positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. We could use technology in order to feed the planet and also in order to look after the naturalistic world. It doesn't have to be and or. So I see technology as being neutral. But the problem is, is that technology is being used at the moment. I think that there's an attempt to control people psychically. And I'm very worried about for example, 5G and other types of technology, um, because we we know through um, well, for example, Joseph um, Farrell's work, um, he's found patents in which um, they've got technologies where they can read people's minds and thoughts, and so it seems to me that an extension of that would be technologies would be remote technologies such as the internet, which would be able to read the mind. Because remember that the mind is just really an electrical signal, mm. and so it is possible to read um, that the brain can pick up on these electrical signals. And when we really look at it from a philosophical perspective. If the, if the brain is electromagnetic and it's sending out electrical signals and our atmosphere is electromagnetic, then it seems to me that pretty much every single thought that has ever been thought is trapped. It's already there within the space. We only need to be able to access that. And we know that some people can access that. And this is psychic ability and telepathy example. Uh, it would also be possible to access it technologically as well. I think what I'm worried about some of these remote technologies is that they could be used in order to um, supplant the human mind or to plant ideas within the head. So it could um, do that very subliminally through um, subliminal implants or connect with the mind telepathically and so that's something which uh, we need to be very mindful of because that's something that I think that um, the state would be interested in developing and we're talking about the more predacious elements of the state because as I said before I don't really want to generalize because if you like governments are made up of a diversity of people and it doesn't have to be that way you know we can take our power back and we can develop technologies in a way which would be conducive for human beings to thrive and in a way which would be constructive for humanity and for the natural world in general so i it doesn't have to be and or we we can develop technologies in a way which would be beneficial for ev everyone you know and we could have a situation in in which we could really have a renaissance of learning and i think that the genie is out of the bottle and there is this renaissance and because before basically you had uh, the keepers of knowledge like oxford and cambridge and a lot of this knowledge was classified and again uh, there were different levels of initiation and even in terms of the um, transliteration of the hieroglyphs so uh, you know i have major problems with the transliteration of the hieroglyphs because they just don't make sense in terms of the um, semitic languages and again i think what you're dealing with here is this private discourse that there's a, a very clever encryption in terms of how they've translated the hieroglyphs it's almost like they will translate the glyph but they will give you a clue as to the actual meaning of the glyph mm -hmm. and so you're seeing the, a very clever, shall we say, um, subterfuge of the truth. And do you think that subterfuge then is maybe the seraphic influence standing in the way of Renaissance or what is the reason for it or who is standing in the way? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think with the um, with the popes as well, the Beaujolais Pope, um, yeah, he was represented as, um, he was represented as uh, an ape. And, and this would go back into the um, humanist tradition. But, uh, yeah, um, 
Yeah, it, it, it's difficult to know, but my understanding is that the seraphic component is certainly this controlling element. They try to control everything, whereas the humanist tradition is, shall we say, a little bit more organic. But the problem with the humanist tradition I've, not, uh, I've noticed is that the humanist tradition, they've almost resigned the humanist tradition is almost resigned to the fact that the seraphic tradition is more powerful, is is greater, um, and has kind of sub, um, that it has control and supplanted humanity. And so, in some of the elements of the humanist tradition, you see the fact that they become very militaristic um, and almost copy the traditions of the seraph. It's almost like if we're going to be able to compete or to beat the seraphic element, we have to be as good or better than them. And so often within the humanist tradition there is this move to copy or to um, to copy the seraphic element in order to compete with them so again that's something that we need to be mindful of um, again I think just philosophically it's very difficult because our language is being played with um, and the artifact is used to control how we think so language controls behavior and our language is being modified in order to modify our behavior and so for me it's very interesting to speculate or to theorize how a human being would actually think if they had not been um, intercepted or if language had not been intercepted. So again, do we actually try and reclaim language? Um, and we're seeing that language is continually being rewritten. Um, and again, this is interconnected with the control structure. We talked about earlier on the synthesization of um, gender, which is um, interconnected with the control structure. And now they're trying to negate gender, which is linked into ideology. So, yeah, language controls ideology. Isn't it the case then that if you're able to manipulate waveform particle duality, Nothing mm. is impossible, whereas we do place as humans limitations on ourselves and we, we fear the impossible, when in reality there isn't a whole lot that is actually impossible. Yes, because remember that we're eternal beings, as are the seraphim. They are part of the anthropos like ourselves, so they have a spirit. Um, but we are suffering from amnesia and this amnesia leads to death. And remember in the old oracle shrines um, hung above the Greek um, at the shrine at Delphi and, and numerous shrines, uh, there would be the saying, know thyself. Well, the Arabic word nafs, which is self, is polymorphic. It means the soul. So know your soul. Know that you are eternal beings. Remember your soul pattern. Try and access the soul pattern through dream states and try and control the imaginal realm and the, the implicated order, which is explicated in physical reality. If you can control that, you can control physical reality. And I think that this is why they're interested in mind control as well. This is the anthropological um, control over reality. So it, the human mind, the observer shapes reality, and this is born out within um, quantum physics. So if you control what the observer thinks, then you control reality. The universe itself was created. The whole purpose of the universe is the observer. The universe was created for the observer. That is the purpose of the universe. So if you control what the observer is watching or how the observer perceives that, then you control the universe. And so this really interrelates in the occult tradition between the um, micro-reality and the macro-reality in terms of how um, this reality is expressed. So to borrow a phrase from your book from Michio Kaku, we ignore the impossible at our peril then. 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, and again, I, this is how I look at it. And um, I mean, I was a teacher for about 10 years and um, I used to always get very frustrated because um, you would have core curriculum subject areas. And so art would be, and I was an art teacher, but again, um, I often taught humanities. Um, and so it would be very frustrating that the arts would always be somewhere at the bottom of the list. And yet the arts gave us culture. Um, so this was something which was frustrating and again in terms of putting children into sets you know when you've got the you've got the school system and basically you have the top set and then you have the middle and the bottom set and really what we're saying to the majority of children two-thirds of the children in fact is that you're average or you're below average now i don't believe that i used to tell the kids that they're all walking around with a supercomputer in their head they're all geniuses. But the problem is most po people don't know how to access that. They don't know what they're good at. And the reason why they don't know what they're good at is because they became demoralized within the schooling system. It was one, The schooling system is only interested in certain types of skills. It's just interested in making little worker bees, little ants. Um, it's not interested in actually um, the expression of genius. But we all have that genius within us. And so, you know, so this is something which we need to be mindful of. So are you optimistic then or pessimistic about humanity and what lies ahead of us? Yeah, I'm quietly optimistic. I, I am optimistic um, just because I do think that there's a lot of good within humanity. And I see, I, I do see that there is evil in the world, but the majority of evil is caused through ignorance. The majority of humanity is not evil. The, humanity wants to do good and strives to do good and strives to better itself. And when we look at this, um, the Second World War and the evil which was perpetrated in the Second World War, whether it was the British soldier, whether it was the Japanese soldier, whether it was the German soldier, they were all fighting for the same thing because in their mind they wanted to make the world a better place. They wanted uh, the world to be a better place, but unfortunately they were ignorant. They were ignorant because um, that's not the way to make the world a better place. Yeah, I think it was Napoleon said, history is a lie agreed upon then. So if we were actually able to transport ourselves mm. back into the mindset of those respective soldiers from those different nations, I think... Well, they were victims, victims of a lie perpetrated. And again, this goes back to the amnesia which we were talking about, because we're all from the same family. So and we all, we all have the expression of genius within us. For somebody who might like to maybe learn to access, maybe they're listening to you for the first time, Pierre, and they would like to access the genius within them. Obviously, easier said than done. And you did mention know thyself earlier. What would be the first step or the first bit of advice that you could give for somebody who wanted to take that first step for themselves? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, but I, I think it often requires sacrifice. So, for example, there are many people out um, there who would, you know, for example, teachers who say, well, I would love to do this or I'd love to do that, but my life hasn't turned out this way. Well, sometimes you have to make sacrifices. I mean, I quit my job as a teacher in order to write books because I wanted to write. And so that was a sacrifice and it, and it wasn't easy and it still isn't easy I know I don't make much money from my writing but I'm obsessed about it and I love researching and I love learning about things that other people don't know about which is so obscure and so that's where I chose you know I said to myself I want to become a man of knowledge I want to understand what has been hidden and <laughs> And, and therefore, you know, I made a sacrifice. The sacrifice was the uh, pecuniary gains which I could have made through teaching. Um, but again, um, then as a result of um, writing these books, I found out that I had an aptitude for um, pattern recognition. And so I found out that, you know, there was a, 
a glimmer of genius within me, something that I'd never recognised before. And again, because I'd been in the schooling system, I'd been, been to when I'd studied um, languages. I was always told I was never very good at language. But actually, when I was remembering um, my for my French GCSE, I used to make correspondences um, between. Um, Etymologies, just naturally illuminates, which is matches to illuminate. Mm-hmm. So I was naturally making those correspondences. And it's kind of interesting because certainly when I was writing The Murder of Reality, I had not studied morphology, and yet I'd managed to decode the uh, morphology of the Indo-European languages. And I later found out that the morphology, the breaking of the morphology of the Indo-European languages was w- one of the greatest breakthroughs within um, uh, within linguistics. And so I, I just intuited that because to me it was very obvious. I didn't need anyone to tell me that the B is um, close to the V sound, which is related close to the F and the Th. To me it was very obvious. Mm-hmm. So, so, so again, yeah, I, but you won't... You, for those viewers out, uh, um, for those viewers, if they don't make that first step, then they will always live a life of mediocrity. And I think that this was something that I was always afraid of. Um, I, I knew certainly by the time I was sixteen uh, that life is that we're mortal. And I, I understood that life is very short. Even if you live to be an old man of 99 years old, it's still relatively short. And I knew that I really want, I had something to do in my life. I felt driven and I really wanted to, um, to excel. I didn't want to be mediocre in life. And if, if the viewer doesn't want to be mediocre, sometimes they have to make sacrifices, sacrifices which are big sacrifices. But those sacrifices will pay off if, um, if you persist. Well, I'm very glad that you did make those sacrifices. I'm currently in the middle of Holographic Culture, your most recent book. And it's a fascinating read. I mean, I'm coming across so much information that I had never been privy to in my life, but a huge amount of it resonates straight away with me. It's not a particularly easy read for me, and I find myself having to go over bits and pieces, but it's very well laid out. And for anybody who's interested in the conversation we've had, I highly recommend it. So how can you direct people to your work, to your books and to your website, Pierre? Okay, um, Piesa Back Books is my website. Um, also, I'm looking for more subscribers on my YouTube channel. So again, I, I do interviews and I talk to people and um, I put out various different videos. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel. But um, yeah, Piesa Back Books or just um, Google Piesa Back. I don't sell my books over Amazon. I just sell them privately through my website. So if you do want to buy a book, you will have to buy it through myself. Sometimes I get asked if I have electronic editions, but I don't have electronic editions of my book and I don't really have any intention of releasing an electronic edition, um, an, an, an electronic um, edition of my book. And, and this is really because... I want to have um, it physically just because, you know, it, 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 ex- it has a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And I- so that's that's important for me that these books um, live on, that they have a life of their own. I, I, I think, and again, like what you were saying, you would not come across this because it was hidden, um, but as th- this is not written about. So what I've spoken about today it's not as though you can um, read a book and you will find out about this tradition. You know, as I've I've read, you know, I've read dozens and dozens of books in the on the occult tradition, and there is nothing on this. This is a hidden tradition. Uh, the church hid this, 
as did all the other priesthoods. And so if you want to learn about this, the scatological tradition, the study of angelic vessels within the religious and mythological tradition, you will have to uh, read my book. So, you know, but it's an... It's integral. It's really an important piece. If you want to study religion, you want to understand mythology, I would say to you, you cannot understand those subjects without reading my book. It is a very important missing piece. And so I would recommend it. You know, Holographic Culture took me eight years to write. It's nearly 600 pages. I illustrated the book as well because... um, and I, I always wanted to be an artist and before I became um, interested in all of this I was always painting and drawing and so I illustrated the book as well and so it's something which is very personal but it's also I think it feel very important if you want to understand the um, angelic ships within the religious and mythological tradition or again if you want to understand the occult tradition of ufology this is new ufology then you really do have to look at this book because there are certainly there are not very many good books on ancient aliens unfortunately well this book is great and one of the things i've noticed as i work my way through it is once i've been made aware of certain symbols or certain code it's almost like a spell has been broken i can't unsee it again and it seems so obvious all of a sudden it's amazing Mm. Well, that's it. I I think that this is, you know, this is a part of, um, this is the wake-up call. You know, this knowledge is being being deconstructed, and it's very important in terms of how we address our rulers and understand rulership, lordship, and again, in terms of the political systems as well, in terms of do we go into Europe or don't we go into Europe? Well, this tradition of the republic is an old age tradition and it goes back to the central idea do men rule themselves or are men ruled over by the um, Elohim and by their mediators which is this um, grafted lineage and again even if um, we are ruled over by this grafted lineage then surely men have the right to make a choice and to represent themselves and we need to be knowledgeable of this so that we can understand the political symbolism the religious symbolism and so we can understand our history as a species although there may be sacrifice there is always a choice and that is a message for all of us i think certainly at this time because humanity does seem to be at a certain crossroads at the moment in my opinion or from my point of view yeah it's going to be interesting to see what pans out over the next while i have the power you have the power we have the power Pierre, it's been fantastic speaking to you today. I feel like we've only scratched the surface and I hope we can do this again sometime in the future. It's been enlightening and wonderful to talk to you. It's been great also to speak to you as well, John. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your viewers as well for taking the time to listen. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Pierre. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep things afloat. So if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee or a sandwich or whatever it might be, you'll find the donation links on our website. No problem if you can't, but if you can, it's greatly appreciated. So until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Wicked when you're unwanted, streets are running when you're down, when you're strained. Faces come out of the rain when you're strained. No one remembers your name when you're strained.